0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting, truly exciting edition of the Remnant podcast. Um, I have uh, someone here who, for reasons I'll explain a little later in the conversation, is in some ways partially responsible for me becoming a pundit, um, <laughs> although there may not be reasons that that, that he is particularly thrilled about. and um, But regardless, we're delighted to have uh, on the Remnant podcast, George Will. Hi, George. Remnant of what? Well, uh remember Albert J. Nock? Of
1: course. Yes. Memoirs so, of a Superfluous Man. That's right. And My Enemy of the State. And
0: he wrote a wonderful essay for The Atlantic magazine, I believe in 1936, called Isaiah's Job. And it's one of the best essays in the history of sort of conservatism, uh-huh. liberalism, libertarianism, in which he basically tells people, don't worry about trying to persuade the masses. All you can do is speak to the remnant. Of uh, those who hold on to correct yeah. thinking, I think as, as I want to say, Walter Benjamin paraphrased it. And when I don't know if you've noticed, but when things started to go a little wobbly among the Republican Party and con- the conservative movement, I returned to my love, Albert J. Nock. I'm a huge fan of, mm-hmm. um, and I called the few of us left who haven't hadn't hadn't taken the crazy pills the remnant, and it became the perfect name for my podcast. Very so, good. Um, and so in, in some ways, you are the titular deity of the remnant, <laughs> um, because you actually at a moment where almost everybody else is zagging towards some version of nationalism or collectivism or Catholic integralism, which is the new hot thing, or as uh, our friend Matt Continetti recently put it, post-liberal conservatism, you are zigging the other direction towards actual classical liberalism and liberalism rightly, rightly understood. So your book is called The Conservative Sensibility. And uh, why don't you, I talked to you at some length about your book on C-SPAN. We will put a link up to that in the show notes. Uh, But why don't you, for the sake of listeners who bizarrely didn't tune into that on a weekend night, um, (laughs) sort of make your basic case. I'm sure you haven't done that yet on the book tour.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, I have noticed, and I think Lots of Americans have noticed that things aren't going well. The prestige of government has fallen as the pretenses of government have risen. I thought it was time for, among other things, an exercise in intellectual archaeology to excavate the foundations of the Republic. And I thought of this as a Princeton PhD in terms of an argument between two Princetonians James Madison of the great class of 1771 and Tommy, as he was known for instance, Thomas Woodrow Wilson of the class of uh, 1879. Wilson being the first president to criticize the American founding, which meant criticizing the constitutional architecture that Madison erected in response to the founders' belief in the natural rights which precede government. Wilson rejected this with remarkable forthrightness, and it turns out with remarkable success, as he and subsequent progressives have made hash of the separation of powers with the predictable consequence <coughs> of an emancipated president.
0: So um, in the uh, long-time listeners of this podcast know I consider myself one of the nation's foremost despisers of Woodrow Wilson. So this is an easy... Get in line. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and as I said on the C-SPAN thing, uh, conversation, in some ways, my only criticism of your Criticism of Wilson is that it doesn't quite go far enough. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't get deep into the political prisoners or the attacking the hyphenated Americans or the, the war on the German language, um, but it's a good start. Um, and but part of part of your argument, which I share entirely, is that what Wilson did was he represented the zeitgeist, the intellectual zeitgeist of the time, which was besotted with Bismarck and Darwin, right, and so. Part of his critique of the original, uh, of the foundering, was that it was too Newtonian, Newtonian, and it needed to become Darwinian and adapt to the times. Now, part of your argument, which again I agree with, is that we've never quite that we've never quite gotten over this notion. That's what the living constitution basically yeah. comes from. How are we ever going to get rid of it?
1: Change, change public opinion. <clears throat> At the end of the day, even Supreme Court justices are nominated by elected people and confirmed by elected people. And so if you understand that public opinion is shiftable sand, you get busy trying to shift it.
0: So I, I I agree with that entirely. Persuasion is not it's not the ideal tool, but it's the only one we've got. Exactly. But part of part of your argument, which is a little radical to some ears, I believe it's in chapter four, is persuading judges to use the power their powers to not give a damn about public opinion inside on liberalism or on liberty. Why don't you sort of explain that for a second?
1: Well, uh, there comes a point at which judicial deference to democratic legislatures is dereliction of duty, the duty to superintend the excesses of democracy. For years, conservatives upset by the freewheeling rights manufacturers of the Warren Court said, what we really need is more deference they were picking up the conservative line that celebrated Oliver Wendell Holmes and others who said, Holmes famously, if the people want to go to hell, I will help them. It's my job. Meaning that the excesses of democracy are what democracy is all about, and he could care less. I believe that there is a higher obligation than to the majoritarian ethos of the times. It is to the Constitution. And the so-called counter-majoritarian difficulty, which was a phrase put into our vocabulary by a great man, uh, Alexander Beckel of the Yale Law School, who was a tutor of, friend of, colleague of uh, Robert Bork. Uh, He said that the Supreme Court and judicial review is an anomalous institution in a majoritarian society and inherently problematic. I just don't think that's true for several reasons. First, most of what modern government does has nothing to do with majorities and everything to do with compact, small, intense, educated, articulate, confident, and well-lawyered factions. And therefore, when the majoritarian institutions responsive to these factions does something peculiarly offensive to the rights of the citizenry, it's the court's job to swat it down. That's all. The Constitution, after all, is a tapestry of, particularly the Bill of Rights, of prohibitions on what majorities can do. You want an established church? Sorry, you can't have it. You want restrictions on free exercise of religion? Can't have that either. Even if a majority wants unreasonable searches and seizures, can't do
0: it. So um, get back to some of this in a little bit. But you mentioned you can't have an established church. There were states that had established churches around Indeed. the time of the founding. Do you think states could go back to having established churches? I do not.
1: I'm, a, I'm what uh, uh, Scalia called himself a faint-hearted originalist. But uh, to me, the originalism first breaks on the Eighth Amendment. Uh-huh. There should be no cruel and unusual punishments. The cruel and unusual punishments that were being inflicted in Philadelphia in the summer of <laughs> 1787 would make um, Scalia and me and everyone else blanch. So what you try and figure out is what, they, what the Eighth Amendment tried to do was put the country on record against cruelty. Right. And I'm sorry to say that uh, Earl Warren got it right. There are evolving standards of decency that mark the evolution of a maturing society, and you have to take that into account. Same is true with religion.
0: So a big part of your argument is that, uh, I think you stated forthrightly in the introduction, is that the the task of, I'm paraphrasing, uh, the task of American conservatism <laughs> is to conserve the founding and the principles that created yes. it. Now, I'm very sympathetic to that, and I, I think as a practical matter, the job of the conservative who goes to office to do conservative things, packs his lunch and all of the rest, that a big chunk of his job boils down to that. But one of my sort of philosophical problems, this is very much like a very much a Claremont review of books position, certainly prior to the current occupant of the White House, which is that the American founding is the fundament of conservative fundamentalism. Yes. What's wrong with saying Western civilization is the fundament of of America, is the backdrop? Here's my problem, I'm against fundaments. Um, Reducing all of conservatism um, as a philosophical matter to the founding leaves out all sorts of other strains of cultural norms that are also extremely important. Why say this is what conservatism is?
1: This is what American conservatism is. And the adjective does a lot of work in in modifying that noun. We're not blood and soil, throne and altar, tribal conservatism in the European strain that was evolved to defend existing hierarchies and orders and institutions. We're semi-Burkean in that Burke had a a lively appreciation of what Hayek came to call the spontaneous order of an evolving natural society. We go a step farther, however, in saying that we want to reconcile people to the openness, the exhilaration of an open society. Obviously, the United States owes an enormous debt to various strands of Western civilization, particularly the the English Enlightenment. Um, But we're better at it. That's why, uh, America, (laughs) uh, there is something uh, sublime about the United States' Attempt to have a continental republic. Till the Americans came along and Madison revolutionized democratic theory, there was agreement among the few people who thought democracy was possible that it, if possible it had to be in a small face to face society. Madison said that's exactly wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A small face to face society is apt to be homogenous and therefore have a stable and potentially tyrannical majority to the peril of minorities. Therefore, he said, have a continental and extensive republic in which government protects the different and unequal capacities of acquiring property, which guarantees a saving multiplicity of factions, which means stable, shifting majorities that are not a threat to
0: minorities. An ecosystem, in yes. a sense. Um, he had a
1: sociology of political virtue, and that was
0: it. Uh, so you've been busy on a book tour, so you're probably not wading deep into the weeds on the current obsessions of <laughs> pointy-headed conservatives of different types right this moment. And actually, you've always kind of stayed somewhat isolated from yeah. a lot of this stuff, which I want to talk about in a little bit. But um, for the last three weeks, there has emerged what some of us are calling the French Wars, <laughs> uh, my 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 very close friend and former colleague at National Review, David French, was the target of what I would consider to be a generally unfair attack by another friend of mine, we're not nearly as close, Sora Bamari of the New York Post. And it turns out that while no one was paying attention, the old uh, L. Brent Bozell senior argument that we actually need to live in basically a theocratic society where the state imposes a notion of the higher good um, or the highest good... Um, has uh, erupted out of nowhere. And David and in some so one of the reasons why I want to bring this up is that I think David is a is a truly unfair target of of all of this ire and you are actually a far more fitting one. Yes. <laughs> but I think a lot of these people are afraid to attack you and so they go after poor David, but David is a evangelical Christian. He's been fighting for yeah. Christian, you know, for religious liberty and campus free speech stuff for, for decades. And um, his great sin is that he refuses to say that Donald Trump is a man of good character and, and all of these kinds of things.
1: Well, he's also accused, I gather, of having good manners. That's right. I th- That's right. He's polite. Yes. Oh, my God.
0: And there is this theory that what is required is to, in some way, imbibe the pugnaciousness of Donald Trump, and that will lead to victory of some kind. I Have you waded into any of this? No, I've,
1: I've watched from afar, uh-huh. and, I, and I've seen this eruption. There, this is an outgrowth of the Flight 93 election right. syndrome, which is that uh, the end is nigh unless people listen to people like us. Right. It's a way of pumping up the grandeur and magnificence and importance of people who say we stand at Armageddon and things have never been worse but they might get worse tomorrow right. unless radical things are done.
0: And people who disagree with you must shut up for we are at well, an existential it, crisis. Exactly. The
1: existential crisis but the self-dramatizing. Uh, things aren't that bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not happy, and no one writes <laughs> no one writes political philosophy if they're content. <laughs> and they, they write because you're irritated about something or anxious or afraid or something. Um, but I just think this hysteria is to be
0: ignored. so it's funny you bring up angst I quote you in one of my previous books. Uh, there's a story you tell about how when you first got your syndicated column, you called William F. Buckley, how that how how the heck am I going to write? Two columns a week. What was his advice to you? He
1: said, the world irritates me three times a week. He wrote three <laughs> times a week. So the world irritates me. And in the world turns out it's true. The world irritates or amuses or piques my curiosity 100 times a year. Um, I've never had a day when I didn't have three or four things I wanted to write about. Yeah. But never. you keep a list,
0: right? You carry on the I do. I've yeah. got in my pocket. So this brings us to... So one of the things I think is sort of fascinating about this moment is the conservative consensus as the first things crowd calls it, is basic, they claim is shattered, which I think is a little bit of wish casting, but maybe they're right. What was it? Well, basically it was fusionism. Frank Meyer's notion of balancing uh, notions uh, you know, fusionism as shorthand is a f- uh, a, a virtuous a, a sa- a free society um, can only be virtuous if virtue is freely chosen. Virtue mm-hmm. imposed is not virtuous. Um, and you create people that will lead that will lead themselves to tyranny if you think that you can impose virtue from above. And the Tucker Carlson, longtime friend of mine, uh, Yoram Hazzoni, Patrick Deneen, the guys at First Things, Zorab—they've basically, to one extent or another, it's difficult to generalize, have turned their back primarily on this notion that of free markets. And they claim that, uh, as Tucker Carlson put it that the Washington consensus is that it is is entirely libertarian and that Washington is run by libertarians, <laughs> <laughs> which that strikes me as the sane response. How
1: right? long has he lived in this
0: town? <laughs> well, but the, there's, there's a shell game going on because what they do is they define sort of the Lockean liberal order as essentially libertarian because the individual autonomy of free choice is a libertarian notion. And so therefore, mal, you know, uh, supporting free markets and whatnot amounts to libertarianism, which I think is... a there are many stolen bases in that, that journey
1: there. And unfree markets amounts to what?
0: Immunitizing the eschaton. I don't I don't know. <laughs> Elizabeth
1: Warrenism, socialism, whatever we
0: call it. Yeah, well, you know, so Tucker the other night came out and lavished praise on Elizabeth Warren. He economic should have.
1: Plan. He should have <laughs> because he is a uh, he is a uh, working-class socialist. He's not exactly working class. I don't no. know. I don't know how many of them he rubs elbows with at the Metropolitan Club, but but
0: he likes them. He likes them from a distance. Yeah. So you actually, uh, this is the gossip portion of these things, uh, <laughs> you started at National Review in 71?
1: 73. 73. As Frank Meyer was dying of cancer. Okay. So Bill, did you
0: know Frank Meyer at all?
1: I did. Okay. I went up to uh, saw him and his wife at their, they were at Woodstock, as I recall. Is that right? Okay. up Upstate uh, up from the city in uh, well, Hudson Valley.
0: I didn't realize he was telecommuting then. but Well, uh, he wasn't. But uh-huh.
1: he, he was sick and uh, Bill said... Uh, you want to be a columnist, could you also do the back of the book? Uh-huh. And I, knowing nothing about it, said, oh, sure. And uh, that's how I got to know Frank.
0: So Frank was, the, for those who don't know, was a literary editor. Yep. And essentially the managing editor, for at least for a time of, of the magazine. What, uh, what was he like? Uh,
1: a man who um, managed to combine earnestness with goodwill and, uh-huh. and cheerfulness.
0: What was it like working at National Review back in those
1: days? Well, it was great in part because of Priscilla Buckley, Uh uh, Bill's sister, who made the trains run on time. Yeah. She was just terrific. And Bill was fun. And Bill was, again, uh, cheerful.
0: Yeah. And polite.
1: Impeccably polite. Yes. Frenchism. That's right. Premature Frenchism.
0: That's the thing. When people ask me what it was like, I was very lucky. There's sort of a post-Buckley, pre-Buckley people who worked at National Review in my time. And... Um, I was fortunate enough to get to know Bill. And when I first, and I've been saying this for years, um, the first time I was invited to his Maisonette, whatever you call that, on 73rd Street, I was terrified because I thought it was going to be Chesterton quotes and Latin puns all night long. (laughs) And (laughs) it turns out that Bill... Was if the de- if the definition of good manners isn't necessarily what fork to use, but making people feel respected and listened mm-hmm. to, he's arguably the best mannered person yes. I'd ever met in my life. And the I and so it was interesting. I was reading this book about uh, Bill Rusher, and uh, who's the longtime publisher of National Review, and the author was making this point that one of the great advantages of William F. Buckley was that. At a time when everyone was de- the media was so determined to make uh, uh, George Wallace seem like the face of what right the right mm-hmm. was, Buckley comes along, mannered, erudite, can out debate Galbraith and all these kinds of people. And uh, even though you were annoying a good number of people at National Review for calling for Spiro Agnew to be dumped from the ticket and all these and all your Watergate columns, you were at the end of the day you were considered. A net asset because you were one of the only younger people out there who could do the similar stuff that, that Buckley was doing.
1: Yeah, it a close call, but a net <laughs> asset.
0: But you were not—you did not win. You win a lot of friends on the right back in those days. You were a harsh critic of the Nixon administration,
1: which didn't help me. I left the uh-huh. Senate staff <clears throat> at the end of 1972 to start a column with National Review, and Meg Greenfield, the then deputy editor of the Washington Post editorial page, said, submit columns to us also. So I did, and they decided to start a syndication, the Washington Post Writers Group, in order to syndicate David Broder. Mm-hmm. But it's as easy to syndicate two as one, so they said, we'll do Will also. So they said we have this great marketing idea. <laughs> Agnew had been crashing around the country saying they're mow mowing the editorial pages, saying right. they're not enough conservative. Mattering nabobs of, of nabobs of negativism and all the rest. And the post said, "Fine, we'll tell the editors here's someone who will at last support Nixon, <laughs> <laughs> So I become a columnist in january seventy three at about the time Judge Sirica imposes the severe penalties, probably excessive penalties on James McCord and others, and the Watergate thing begins to unravel, so i uh called it as I saw it, and I thought there was where there's a lot of smoke, there's a lot of smoke and i'm gonna and I kept at this and At one point, uh, Nixon's chief of staff, Alexander Haig, called me at my home and said, "Uh, the boss really likes your writing. Mm -hmm. Maybe you'd like to come over and get on board at the White House. And I said, I am extremely flattered, (laughs) but you should read my next column (laughs) before you extend this offer. And I never heard from them again.
0: So over your long tenure as a columnist and as a conservative and and sort of one of the Mount Rushmore figureheads of, of, let's say, post-65 conservatism, mm-hmm. um, you've managed to do two things. And one of the things is, not obvious, is, is obvious to a lot of people, which is you, you managed to not go native and sort of mellow. Or tr- I don't know how to put this. Mellow is the wrong word. You didn't grow, as Linda Greenhouse would put it. As <laughs> Strange you, new respect. That's right. As yes. your profile increased, <laughs> you still. I remember. I remember a long time ago. This is the '90s. I was here at AEI, and you wrote a scathing column about Dan Rostenkowski. And I remember uh, Tom Mann being just stunned that someone in your elite position could remain as distant from (laughs) the sort of swamp stuff. The other part, which I don't think a lot of people understand, is that you also kind of kept at an arm's length a lot of the sort of conservative industrial complex stuff as well. I mean, you had your start briefly, not start, but you had your time at National Review, but you were in some ways sort of like the Reader's Digest. (laughs) I mean this sincerely. Conservative (laughs) but (laughs) but apart. I I don't mean... Yeah, silly. Well, I mean, you know, about... partly
1: it's temperamental.
0: Uh-huh. I mean, Samu- not a joiner.
1: Samuel Johnson described himself as unclubbable, uh-huh. and I may be unclubbable.
0: Has it? So, going back to the days of the Nixon stuff, were the arguments then on the right, such as you were part of them, uglier or meaningfully different than the arguments we're having today about Trump?
1: I, I think they were more civil and uh-huh. they were more substantive. Uh, And they weren't as angry. Uh Basically conservatives knew what they were worried about. First of all, the Soviet Union, which we tend to forget has gone away and organized a lot of thinking, arms control and all the rest. Uh, And then there was the the question of pandemic spending. Mm. This was at a time when it was still possible to believe that Americans conservatives in public office cared about pandemic deficits. We now know they don't anymore, which simplifies the argument somewhat. (laughs) So, but uh, it was different.
0: What do you think, uh, if you had to diagnose the maladies that explain that difference, where where would you, how would you do the triage of your diagnosis there?
1: Well, conservatives, many conservatives have succumbed to the temptation of power. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scripture tells us to put not our faith in princes. They put their faith in a prince. Right. And when he's gone, they'll pick another prince. They, are, they have fully absorbed the ethos of presidential government, presidential society, really. I mean, we have uh, no president has ever come close to absorbing public attention and the national consciousness, if you will, to this one. Roosevelt, who sort of revolutionized presidential rhetoric with using that marvelous new invention, radio, uh, never came close, never tried to come close. Now, how many fireside chats would he do in a year? I don't even know, maybe seven? Right. That's a, that's a pre-5 a.m. tweet storm by the current person. So the conservatives have happily been swept up in the maelstrom of presidential-itis.
0: But isn't, I want to stay on this for a 2nd isn't, part of that a symptom of the Madisonian sociology breaking down? Yes. If you had healthy institutions where people were had roots there, they might not look to Washington for a president to entertain them or to give them meaning, whether it's Barack Obama yes. or, or Donald
1: Trump. And if members of Congress did not think of themselves as team players, right. either on the president's team or on the visiting team, playing the president's team. You would have something something like the Madisonian institutional equilibrium, but that's gone.
0: So doesn't that raise the prospect then that the that as much as I agree with you that persuasion is very much important that a huge amount of our problems lie way upstream of Washington, and which I understand that yep. some of this is in your book that none of the problems that we see today, whether or not you think Donald Trump is a problem or Barack Obama is a problem or the the life of Julia Ethos is a problem. If if you had healthier families and healthier communities and healthier institutions like organized religion and whatnot, people would not be looking to Washington to f- find meaning in their lives in the first place.
1: I think that's right. Uh, the search for meaning and collective action in politics is the source of <clears throat> ruin. The twentieth century, communism, fascism, all the rest—the mass movements need a mass and that needs the massification of people. And what's scary is when people embrace that consciously and right. enthusiastically.
0: There's that essay from Wilson about leaders of men. Exactly. bind up.
1: Well, well he, yeah. in one of his, I quoted, it's an epigraph of one of my chapters. He says, in the good society, people will be like bees in a hive. Right. Very strange <laughs> aspiration, but right. it was his. I, uh, people have to calm down about politics. Government is important. Free markets are government creations. I got that. Government has lots to do. Fill the potholes, deliver the mail. I guess it doesn't do that so much anymore, but <laughs> do whatever it does. That's plenty. So, De- delivering meaning isn't one of them.
0: So this brings me back to the question I asked earlier about state-established churches. <clears throat> I am, as I get older, I've become at the federal level more radically libertarian than I used to be. And at the local level, I get vastly more communitarian than I mm-hmm. used to be. What is so wrong with, you know, first of all, bringing back the Ninth, Tenth Amendment, and all of that? That would be nice. But <laughs> um, uh, sending as much power down to the most local level
1: possible—subsidiarity, as the Catholics say, right? Yes,
0: and and that would. But so here's the here's the question: the isn't part of the problem we have. It's not so much the tyranny of majorities its tyranny of national majorities, I'm much less concerned about the, quote unquote, tyranny of majorities at a local level.
1: That's exactly where Madison worried about the tyrannies, which is why he wanted the extensive republic. He said in a local small area where the, that the anti-federalists are celebrated, you are much more apt to have stable tyrannical majorities. We did indeed. We had localism in Jim Crow laws. Sure,
0: sure, no, I agree with they
1: respe- that. They reflected the majority opinion in Greenville, Mississippi, and in Gadsden, Alabama, and it took it took a national decision not to respect local majorities, and it was a virtuous decision.
0: I agree with that entirely. Uh, they were democratic tyrannies, and they needed to be smashed. But they also the issue of slavery rises to a first order question about natural rights, the dignity mm-hmm. of the individual and all these kinds of things, banning rap music or having curfews or, or prohibition on alcohol in some small town, it seems to me that's an area where the federal government should be entirely silent.
1: Other than to say you can't do it at the local level. That's where you and I differ. Okay, I, I, I'm not... Uh, a prohibitionist uh-huh. or an anti-prohibitionist i do remember getting a jolt toward libertarianism when i was driving with one of my children from washington to Kew island south carolina where i have a home and i stopped for the night in florence south carolina uh-huh. on sunday night looking for my evening martini and found that the local Ayatollahs had said that was not going to happen and i said this, this is Insufferable, <laughs> and got more libertarian as a result of that. But um, banning rap music on what grounds? Uh-huh. Exercising what power of government? What to purify the culture? To censor offensive speech? I don't want to go down there.
0: Yeah, no, no, I, that, that's fair. I should say, I, I, and I'm not proposing banning rap music. I'm not in favor of banning any music or any of that kind of stuff, and in fact, my positions on the local level will be fairly libertarian about many of these things, but being able to heavily regulate what you can do in the public square in a local area seems to me... Here, here's my diagnos- part of my diagnosis of the problem, is that when you send all this power to Washington um, or the federal regime or whatever you want to call it, um, it is inevitable that people at a local level far away are going to feel like unseen forces, whether you call them the deep state or the administrative state or the globalists or whatever you want to call them, <laughs> that, uh, yeah. that they feel powerless. And that powerlessness is the classic kindling for populist movements. Mm-hmm. And if you send power back down to the most local level possible, the powers that be suddenly have names and you know who to fire, and you know who, how to hold them accountable. And that also means that if they have that power, they're going to exercise it in ways... I mean, laboratories of democracy is a was a loaded phrase. Mm-hmm. Brandeis had an agenda there. But letting people... Having the transcendental imagination, which is a phrase you've used in a few columns, to make this a more interesting country to drive across. Yes, Where communities... Because as, as Antonin Scalia was the first to point out to me... Federalism is the best system ever conceived of for maximizing human happiness because it lets the most people live the way they want to live.
1: Mm-hmm. And, that and they means, can vote with their feet. If that's right. You, like you can't get a
0: martini in Kio- not Kiowa, well, wherever this other place was. You yes. don't live there. yes, yeah. Yeah. Or you do what Bill Buckley did and always travel with your own alcohol. <laughs> I, I learned my lesson.
1: <laughs> no, I, I agree with that. If power is to be exercised, it ought to be exercised as much as possible at the local level. The question is how much power should be exercised collectively through government. Okay,
0: that's fair, and, so. and that's a prudential question. Yeah, I, I yeah. agree with that. Um, but you know, the, when I talk to college kids about this, you know, you have to you have to open up by saying slavery was bad; they were right to crush that. <laughs> Jim Crow was bad. I also like to point out, though, that Jim Crow was um, wasn't capitalism; it was statism; it was the kind of public choice factions that you despise conspiring against the public good to rig the system to constrain local labor markets yes. so black people couldn't move, yeah. right? And so once I concede or explain all that, I then say, now do you really think that your local microbrewery needs the okay from someone in Washington? Do you think that like, the Oregon state health officials are okay with this microbrewery mm-hmm. po- poisoning <clears throat> you? Yeah. You know, or why can't you get, you know, unpasteurized cheese that tastes like death without Washington's approval? And mm-hmm. that part they kind of get because yeah. Young people today hate the homogenization of America that they think comes from capitalism. Some of it comes from capitalism, mm-hmm. but some of it comes from an overweening federal government yep. that runs everything, right? Anyway, that's my well, I do this often on this podcast as rant about this. So I, I, I <laughs> apologize. Right. So you you are not in fact um pessimistic about the future or about America.
1: Well, my book is a summons to intelligent pessimism, okay? Not fatalism. Uh-huh pessimism in the sense that there are so many ways things can go wrong, and so many ways that things have gone wrong in the human story, that it is wise to be alert to the looming possibility that it'll happen again. And we know what the problems with democracy can be. We know some of them, and there's unimagined ones that are lurking around the bend, so be alert. That's all. Be, Be wary It's like living in a city. There are wonderful pleasures to live in a city, but there also requires a certain urban wariness Mm -hmm. about certain neighborhoods and certain behaviors, and you learn to live that way. It's true of democracy.
0: This is a fantastic segue to the story I want to tell, which I don't think you know of. So the first time we met, I was an earnest college student at a place called Goucher College, and I was part of the first year of college. of its of co-education so I'm it's up
1: in Baltimore
0: up in Baltimore yeah. I'm, I'm not quite the Rosa Parks of gender integration but I did my <laughs> bit and uh, and you came to give a speech and I was invited to the president's house for a pre meeting among student leaders and faculty and whatnot and we were talking and I, and I, I begrudge you not at all for not remembering this. Now, now having done so many <laughs> campus visits, there are countless people who come up to me no. and say, you don't remember meeting me. And they're right. <laughs> um, and this was also 30 something years ago. And uh, and we were talking and I explained to you that Victor Lasky was my brother's godfather and one of my father's best friends. And for listeners who don't know, Victor Lasky was a muckraking right-winger of a sort, mm-hmm. um, but an interesting fellow. And, uh, and my parents knew William Sapphire. I don't think I told you that the first time I met Pat Buchanan was at my bris, which was an interesting way to meet Pat Buchanan. (laughs) And as my friend Rob Long says, that might explain some of his attitudes towards the Jews. Um, But um, uh, And so at some point, it was all going great. And then at some point, we were talking about New York City, where I'm from. And this was probably the height of the crime wave, um, certainly of the murder wave. And I mentioned that there were times in high school where me and my friends would, my friends and I, would walk through Central Park at night. And a look of disdain came over your face. And you said, well, I have something along the lines of, well, then you're an idiot. And mm-hmm. the conversation sort of ended there. I see. <laughs> and that was fine. It was over. Yeah. And you were actually correct. That's fine. Yeah. I'm not, again, I don't regret you. I don't, and so fast forward about five years, you were in your um, uh, term limits phase. When mm-hmm. you were, are you still on term limits? Yes. Or, OK. Beto, in, Beto
1: and I are. Uh, <laughs> Beto's come out for term limits.
0: And uh, we'll come back to that in a second. Yeah. So. I was a young policy gnome at the American Enterprise mm-hmm. Institute, very earnest. And uh, you um, were giving your, I think it was a Bradley lecture about, about terminalists. And I said, during the Q&A, I said, wouldn't a lot of the problems that you're addressing be solved if we just went back to the founder's vision about how big congressional districts should be, um, and that we should actually have a, con- congr- a Congress of about five or 6,000 people? <laughs> And the sovereign contempt with which you greeted this question enraged me. And um, uh, and people laughed at me. You won this exchange. And I heed myself to my personal monastery of my apartment on 16th Street and uh, pounded the typewriter like Snoopy, uh, coming up with this irrefutable argument about all of this. And I worked on this and I worked on this and trimmed it down worked on it some more. And I ended up, as happenstance would have it, it was the first op-ed I ever submitted for publication. Mm -hmm. I sent it to the Wall Street Journal and they accepted it. Uh And they sat on it for a few months. And then the day after the election in 1992, Mm -hmm. I think it was. uh, Yeah, it was. It was Newt Gingrich, Bill Bennett and Jonah Goldberg, and I was making the argument for expanding the size of the House of Representatives. And mm-hmm. I did it in a fun, mirthful kind of way. Yeah. But when you talk about how annoyance is your muse, yeah. if you had not humiliated me so, I am not sure I ever would have gotten this bug. So that, I owe it all to you. That's why
1: I did it. <laughs> As Franklin Roosevelt used to say after some fortuity had rescued him, and said, I planned it that way.
0: <laughs> but I thought you should know this. I'm glad so, to know it. Yeah, so. So, what do you say to the problem, getting back to term limits, what do you say to the problem of if you have term limits, all you're doing is uh, handing power over to the sort of permanent bureaucracy of Washington even more?
1: Uh, There's not that much more for it to get. They've um, already done this without term limits. Uh, it is a real danger. Uh-huh. Every reform has problems. The question is what's worse? And I have come to the conclusion, I came and wrote a book in 94, I think, called Restoration, Congress, Term Limits, and the Recovery of Deliberative Democracy. Mm-hmm. I understand the problem of the permanent government. I understand the problem of the lobbyist community. Mm-hmm. I understand the problem of draining institutional memory from from uh, the Senate and the House. Got it. I just think that uh, there's no safety in politics. Mm-hmm. There's, and You're going to... You're, you're going to cause problems with term limits. I just think on balance, fewer and more tractable problems.
0: So, uh, and this is another obsession of mine, um, couldn't you make the argument, I make the argument, that one of the main drivers of our the problem with our politics is that despite the fact we live in the most one of the most partisan times in history, our parties have never been weaker? Yes. And couldn't some of the problems that you're, you identify, and again, I think you identify correctly, be solved if we actually let the parties be stronger and have an institutional uh have a, an institutional interest in protecting their own brand and having a time horizon beyond the next election.
1: Yes. And one way to do that is to abolish all campaign finance laws, mm-hmm. all, all of which I think are constitutionally problematic at best. Let the money go pour back in. Right. Reduce the role of candidates as Freebooting entrepreneurs, raising their own capital to invest in themselves. Let the parties distribute money the way they used to. Very good idea.
0: And another one would be, I would argue, because I agree with you entirely, what Mitch McConnell said we're not getting money out of politics, we're just getting the parties out of politics. And I think right. he was proven right. Yeah. Um, but wouldn't another or would another um, part of the solution be to have the parties give up on the primary system?
1: Back to the smoke-filled room in the Blackstone Hotel in Chicago? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah but who's going to play Mayor Daly and who's going to play Boss Hague and who's going to play Boss Crump and all those people?
0: Uh, you can just have a mixed regime. Look, <clears throat> uh, Elaine K. Mark makes this point that America is the only advanced industrialized democracy where the parties have completely abdicated the power to yes. pick their own nominees. Yeah. And Which
1: is the most important thing they do.
0: It, it is what they do, to a certain extent. Right. And I think that has been disastrous. You know, Yuval Levin makes this point often that... You know, there are one of the signature problems with our culture is that, his, that properly understood what an institution does is it forges character. It forges you to give up your sort of Rousseauian noble savage and bend yourself to the mm-hmm. needs of an institution, Marines being the best example of that. Yeah. And you've all identified as the problem in our culture is that we no longer see or too many people no, no longer see institutions as something that they surrender to. They see them as platforms to perform on. And if you look at the story of Donald Trump and and Bernie Sanders, they did not see the Republican Party as an institution that they should bend to. They saw it as something at best to perform on, if not to entertain by gladiatorially disembowing it for public mm-hmm. consumption. And so at the very least, you could bring back the notion of a robust system of, of delegates that are actually left up to state parties or something like that. Yeah,
1: of course, the Democrats have just completed the last, to use coin of phrase, remnant mm-hmm. of the old way of doing things right. by further reducing, I don't know if they've entirely extinguished, the superdelegates, who were supposed to be the adults in the room who said, look, it's our business. We are elected officials. It's our business to win elections. Here's how you do it. But uh, that, that's a lost argument.
0: Yeah. Well, but, but as you say, our task at hand is persuasion, right? right? right. And. It seems to me that I would have an easier time persuading party hacks that they should have more power than I should be able to persuade the masses that um, they should pick up their own damn crap or whatever. You know? yeah. you know, um, and so I, I think there is an, a, an elite play here where you can actually persuade institutions that they deserve to have more power. And that might be an easier job than than the rest. I just... because what we're heading into is a system that was not designed to be a parliamentary system behaving like a parliamentary system.
1: Yeah. Well, 60 years ago, the political scientists in America said, if only the parties would sort themselves out on ideological grounds, we'd have a rational politics like Europe. Well, we've done that. <laughs> and is everybody happy? Not exactly. Right. When I came to Washington to work on this Republican senator's staff, nineteen seventy. The Senate was run by Eastland of Mississippi, uh, Stennis of Mississippi, Richard Russell from Winder, Georgia, McClellan from Arkansas, Talmadge from Georgia. It's entirely Southern Democrats. Not entirely, but close enough. There are no Southern conservative Democrats anymore. There are no liberal Republicans anymore. And is everybody happy? I don't think so.
0: So buy gold. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, well, George Will, thank you so much for doing this. I really I enjoyed appreciate it. it. Thank you. Yep. Hope you come back sometime. I will. All right. Hold the book up. Oh, absolutely. The book is <laughs> The Conservative Sensibility by George Will. Uh, I have read it. I will review it at some point. I did a C-SPAN interview with, with George. I think it is up there with ideas of consequences as, and a couple other of the main sources of the conservative canon, I have to decide whether I'm willing to give it equal billing with fatal conceit, but that, you'll live if I come up just a hair shy of it. Um, and it is, uh, it's a wonderful entry into the, um, the absolute mess that is the right these days. So, Good. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. I'll tell you who's an attractive man. George Will. Really? Yeah, yeah he has a clean look, scrubbed and shampooed. And... He's smart. No, no, I don't find him all that bright. <laughs>